Years ago, we spoke about small island developing states on the front line because we were the canaries in the mine. Today, we speak of all countries. Welcome to Think Change, the podcast from ODI, where every fortnight we discuss the world's most pressing challenges with leading experts and commentators. I'm your host, Sara Pantuliano, ODI's chief executive. The clip you just heard was Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley speaking at this year's high-level segment of the UN General Assembly on the 22nd of September. This is the second episode in our three-part series that accompanies COP27, the 27th annual UN climate conference that is taking place in Sharm el-Sheikh right now. The focus for this episode will be loss and damage. That's a topic that has finally gained traction at last year's COP in Glasgow, and it's actually become one of the most contentious issues in the climate negotiations. We are releasing this episode right in the middle of the negotiations, but actually we wanted to zoom out. We wanted to look at the broader context within which these conversations around loss and damage are playing out. COP27 is taking place against the backdrop of multiple interlocking crises. We have rising living costs, we have soaring debt, of course, we have the climate emergency. And in fact, in our previous episode, we explored the implications of the global energy crisis. Uh, and we talked about the need for a rapid transition away from fossil fuels. But meanwhile, the pressure for redress is growing from the states who are really most impacted by the consequences of a change in climate. The small island developing states, or SEEDs as they are more you know, commonly known, are demanding a commitment from the G7. You know, they want a loss and damage response fund that can help countries and communities respond to and recover from extreme weather events. But also, you know, a fund that can help them fight the progressive erosion of their ecosystems and livelihoods. At the same time, we're seeing climate litigation increase. Up to 2017, there were 884 cases in 24 countries. Well, fast forward to 2020, and there are 1,550 cases in 38 countries. So while loss and damage can't easily be quantified, average annual losses from extreme weather are projected to be in the trillions of dollars by 2050. So where can we go from here? I've invited two climate experts from ODI to speak with me today, along with two leading voices in the loss and damage debate that come from the small island developing states. I'm delighted to introduce Avinash Persaud. Avinash is an advisor to Prime Minister Mia Motley that we've just heard. Avinash, it's really a pleasure to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. We also have His Excellencies Pakoa Kaltonga, Vanuatu Special Envoy on Climate Change. Welcome, Minister. Thank you very much. And with us from ODI are Emily Wilkinson, Senior Research Fellow at ODI. Welcome, Emily. Hi. And Charlene Watson, Senior Research Associate at ODI. Thank you, Sarah. Emily, let me turn to you first. Why is loss and damage a key area of focus for this year's COP? So last year at COP26, the um, large developing country negotiating group, which is known as the G77 plus China, sought redress for the impacts of climate change through the loss and damage negotiations. And that group called for a finance facility for climate change related loss and damage. Um, And that was a really strong demand. But actually, the issue dates back to 1991, when the Alliance of Small Island States, AOSIS, first called for a mechanism to compensate countries affected by sea level rise. So we can see that this has been uh, a topic of discussion for a very long time. 
but is really coming to the fore now. Repeated attempts to raise the profile of loss and damage within the negotiations have been met with hostility from rich countries, perhaps unsurprisingly. Um, and at the last COP, this, these calls for a loss and damage facility uh, were firmly blocked, um, particularly by the US and the EU, in favour of a dialogue on loss and damage, the, the Glasgow Dialogue. Um, so the, the issue dates back um, a long time in the negotiations, but also really importantly, loss and damage um, is happening now and um, countries are experiencing the impacts of climate change and the science to demonstrate the contribution of climate change to these impacts is improving. Um, and scientists have been working for about the last 20 years to understand the links between individual weather events and climate change. And they're getting better at analysing the so-called climate signal or the level to which climate change is responsible for a particular weather event. Um, and we can see, for example, with the uh, catastrophic flooding this year in Pakistan, um, you know, the very huge impacts um, and um, these are impacts which countries, well, and particularly communities, are largely paying for themselves. Um, hence the call for um, you know, additional loss and damage finance. This is why it's kind of moving up the agenda, becoming increasingly important topic. Well, thank you very much, Emily. But I mean, of course, we're discussing uh, how this is a particular um, critical issue for seeds, but it goes beyond seeds, doesn't it, Avinash? Most definitely, the the area of greatest climate vulnerability in the world today is between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn. We call that the front line of the climate crisis. That's where temperatures are rising to the most intolerable levels and sea level is rising uh, the most. And um, that's a wide set of countries. Uh, it covers around 3.3 billion people, about 40% of the world's population are in climate vulnerable places. And there's not only a front line, there's also a back line. I, and I personally think that's one of the reasons why we're not making enough progress uh, on climate change. The countries that have the resources to do so are in the back line. So they're not really experiencing climate change. For them, it's a, a future construct uh, rather than a lived reality that many of us are facing. Now, that said, Small island development states are particularly vulnerable within that band around the equator. Uh, they are small, and so we're now getting storms, Category 5 hurricanes, that are bigger than these islands, many times bigger. Uh, that means there's no place, there's no refuge. Uh, when the tragedy of Aceh hit Indonesia, uh, there were parts of, you know, many, many parts of Indonesia that were not impacted. Uh, well, that's not the case when you get a, a storm obliterating an entire island. Dominica, for example, lost 226% of its GDP. Um, the tragedy in Pakistan is going to cost them about 10% of GDP. Uh, so small does have an added problem. And then being an island, sea levels are going up by 75 centimeters, maybe over a meter. Um, a lot of the GDP of islands um, around the coast, they are really coastal states, ocean states. Uh, and so sea level going up does have a particular problem. That's incredibly interesting. Thank you, um, Avinash. How do you think existing development and climate finance has worked? I mean, seem to have failed a lot of these countries. Well, one of the biggest problems is that the, the architecture of concessional funding um, is still very much focused on GDP per capita. So um, concessional funding, uh, 
which is the funding you need to build your resilience. Remember that cost of capital is probably the biggest problem facing uh, our ability to do something about climate. Uh, a, a, a rich country can borrow money at uh, two to 3%. Uh, over 10 years. Uh, developing countries are borrowing money now um, at uh, the, the average rate is 14%. There's almost no private project that makes money at 14%. So we have to borrow to build resilience and we're borrowing at very high rates. And we can't get access to concessional money, even though every dollar we spend today on climate resilience will save between four and seven dollars in the future. So it makes great economic sense you know, to pay for the doctor now rather than getting money for the undertaker tomorrow. But so we've been arguing and championing the idea of widening the eligibility for concessional funding to include climate resilience investments for climate vulnerable countries. Um, clearly, concessional money is, is not you know, unlimited, so we need to limit it. So limiting it to climate vulnerable countries and to their climate investment uh, in, in, in climate um, re resilience. So uh, we think that that uh, is one of the one of the ways forward. The existing structure does not help us. Uh, they will give us money um, when a disaster hits, but that really is far too late. We need to invest in better adaptation and better resilience now. That makes perfect sense. But um, what about loss and damage? I, I view loss and damage as being quite separate. So we need to invest in resilience and adaptation. And we can borrow money for that because every dollar we spend, we're saving money down the road. Loss and damage, you can't borrow money for. Loss and damage has to be in the form of grants. Loss and damage is you just had a, a, an amazing disaster. If you've got to go and borrow money every time to rebuild homes and rebuild roads and, and rebuild communities, you're going to have a debt crisis very quickly. Indeed, in many countries in the Caribbean, and I'm sure in the Pacific too, uh, around 50% of the increase in debt of climate vulnerable countries is because of dealing with these disasters. So that's where we are today at 1.2 degrees. Imagine at 1.5, there'll be a debt crisis. So we need grants. And this has been one of the doors that has been shut firmly for quite some time. For too long have, have climate vulnerable countries been waiting for these promises uh, of a loss and damage financing. But we are pushing hard on this point. We do think that there is some room. Uh, it's about, in today's um, you know, cash-strapped era, it's about creating new sources of money. The Europeans are going to have a carbon um, tax adjustment mechanism uh, on their borders uh, next year. They're going to do that. Uh, anyway, we may have views about that. Uh, I think the way to, to look at that is how can we make sure it's non-distortionary? How can we make sure it's not anti-poor? But once it is happening and it is those things, then can we not put the additional revenues they would not have had before into loss and damage uh, rather than back home in the states, uh, back home in their countries? Uh, and I think that that would be a way of funding loss and damage. We also think that they could be levies on um, uh, producers, uh, maybe on profits. Uh, people talk about windfall taxes. The problem with windfall taxes is they're one off. Uh, so we need something more systematic than that. And so we've been arguing for a, a 2% uh, levy on, on producers, uh, production of fossil fuels. Uh, I wouldn't put it on today, given the cost of living crisis. I'd put a levy on that may begin at zero and rise to 2% as fossil fuel prices fall back to their pre-Ukraine war, pre-COVID levels. 
Minister Kaltonga, can you explain to our listeners why seeds are particularly vulnerable um, and so heavily impacted by climate-related disasters, but also why the humanitarian system is really not the right architecture to respond? Well, you know, in Vanuatu, we are experiencing uh, quite a wide wide range of uh, uh, climate change uh, challenges in terms of the... uh, uh, the sort of extreme weather we're getting and, and its effect on the uh, communities as such. And you're looking, uh, you're looking at uh, quite a number of widespread disasters that, uh, you know, some are irreversible. And, and uh, so you're talking about uh, lack of water due to desalination, sea level rise, bleaching of coral reefs due to uh, carbon dioxide and the, the sea and, and acidification. You're talking about much more frequent Category Five cyclones, and uh, the damage and the effects it has on the people, uh, to the schools, the hospitals, uh, the provision of education. Uh, to, to, to especially when it happens on a, a more frequent, uh, <laughs> a frequent occasion in in, in a decade. You know what? Why? What? What you normally get in half a century. Uh, of perhaps one category of cyclone is now experienced in three times in a decade and is very, very unsustainable. And so this is why, you know, we are so vulnerable uh, uh, to climate change because of the sustainability, the, the, the frequency in which these, these, these uh, disasters happened. And uh, uh, if it happens once or twice, you're able to recover when it happens happened to quite a number of times and we find it difficult to the extent that contemplating uh, uh, the temperatures increasing to 1.5 degrees as per the, the Paris Agreement uh, would be quite alarming considering what you're seeing around the world at the moment. There's another question in terms of why the humanitarian systems are not enough and, uh, <clears throat> and so we don't have the right architecture to respond such is the extremities of climate change that when it does happen uh, in our cases, the, the most uh, devastating effects are the, the, the cyclones. It reduces GDP by at least 50%. Uh, and and uh, because we're a small island nation and it damages 59% of the crops. And so we have, uh, we're prone to food shortages. Um, the last time we had a major, major Category 5 cyclone, uh, it, it cost around, uh, the cost estimates were about 500 million US dollars. When we came to campaign with all the UN agencies and all the agents there, we only raised 60 million dollars. And this is the sort of unsustainability that we're talking about. And you're talking about damages to infrastructure, schools, hospitals, uh, and uh, and, and, you know, <clears throat> therefore, uh, somehow Vanuatu is considering a totally different approach, and that is the uh, ICJ initiative and uh, getting an opinion. Thank you, Minister. You're describing, you know, quite a, a devastating scenario for the lives and livelihoods of, you know, so many people. Um, Charlie, you're a climate finance expert. What options are currently on the table for financing loss and damage? 
So I, I first want to clarify what we are seeking to finance. And so within this discussion, I want to focus on the financing for addressing loss and damage. And this is being recognized as a missing piece as averting or minimizing losses and damage is often linked to mitigation and adaptation actions and therefore finance. So here I'm really talking about what happens after loss and damage has occurred. And I think it's also important to note the diversity of actions for addressing loss and damage um, that Minister Katonga has talked about means a diversity of financial instruments and modalities are going to be relevant. So the finance that you need in the immediate aftermath of a hurricane is going to be different if you've been displaced permanently from traditional lands or away from cultural heritage. And it's also important to think about who needs that money. The financing options we have to supporting a government versus a subnational government versus a business, a community or a household, they're going to be different. So I've seen and I've quite liked the term that talks about a mosaic of options for financing loss and damage. And this also recognizes that various architectures already exist that could already do support some aspects of financing and addressing loss and damages. And so this includes, as has been discussed, parts of the humanitarian financing system, disaster risk reduction and management financing, development finance and climate finance. Although all of these we've seen are falling short of developing country needs in terms of the quantity. So with all of that said, what's on the table? Within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, we do have the potential to create a new multilateral climate change fund, much like the Green Climate Fund. And the plus side being it would have a very specific loss and damage expertise, but the downside being it could be equally complex to establish and run as the Green Climate Fund has been to date. Alternatively, a mandate could be given to the existing Green Climate Fund to have a loss and damage window or even the Global Environment Facility whom are already working on climate change. But then the danger is that results, frameworks, other policies and processes that govern these existing funds were established for mitigation and adaptation, not loss and damage. Another option is creating a window or a trust fund under the Warsaw International Mechanism. But this has so far been quite technical and focused on knowledge gathering and therefore doesn't have demonstrated capacity for financing. There is a demand for a new loss and damage finance facility by constituencies. But my understanding is this is now being considered as a platform to increase access to the breadth of loss and damage finance as opposed to operating as a single fund per se. Of course, there are also options outside of the UNFCCC. There could be a new UN trust fund, although this might indicate low confidence in the UNFCCC multilateral process itself. There could be a non-UN mechanism, such as that under the G7 or the G20, both of which recognize this year the urgent need for loss and damage action. So the recently launched Global Shield for Climate Risk, which has been endorsed by the G7, includes insurance as a financing option, but also adaptive social security, contingency finance, natural disaster clauses and debt repayments, for example. And there's the option of additional and expanded actions of multilateral development banks and development finance institutions, including, for example, a World Bank window for loss and damage. But there are many details to get into for all of these. What are their governance mechanisms and the developing country representation in order that we meet needs? Are they going to cover full costs or incremental costs of actions? And of course, the key questions will remain on where is this money coming from? Public contributions remain a key option, though we don't want loss and damage to finance to detract or reduce adaptation or mitigation finance. And there's an open question whether uh, larger developing countries, those with large foreign exchange reserves or sovereign wealth funds could voluntarily contribute. Finance could be raised through taxes, such as on aviation, bunker fuels, but then questions arise of 
who holds the tax burden? So for example, the small island developing states might lose out if the tourism, the cost of flying go up and change, change the tourism industry there. In addition, there are discussions ongoing about how debt swaps and the use of special drawing rights, which are an international reserve asset created and managed by the IMF, could be put to work for climate. So in relation, in relation to the latter, the G20 leaders articulated a global ambition to on-lend 100 billion in special drawing rights to vulnerable countries through the Resilience and Sustainability Trust Fund. But with special drawing rights, the devil, of course, is in the detail of reallocating or donating these. I think we mustn't forget that in, fin in this financing discussion, we're trying to get money to the most vulnerable and the most impacted by climate change. And that demands we pay attention to not burdening them with complex procedures of access to finance or a huge burden of proof that a climate related weather event has indeed been caused by climate change. So I'll finish just by saying that given the mosaic of needs for addressing loss and damage and the high level of financing needs we face globally, it is possible we need all financing options to come into play at scale and with some urgency. Thank you so much, Charlene. That was a, a very um, exhaustive explanation of you know, the various mechanisms that are on the table. I mean, some of these can get quite technical for our audience, but I think what is emerging very clearly is the importance of having some pre-agreed financing so that we avoid you know sort of countries uh, having to try and and sort of get some some money at the last minute emily you've been looking into this quite a bit can you tell us more yeah that's absolutely right and what the minister was referring to with the example of what happened in vanuatu with the tropical cyclone is what happens very often and is referred to as a begging bowl approach. So basically, uh, appeals are launched to fund relief efforts after disasters have already taken place. And the success of those appeals depends really on moral leadership and generosity of, of donor governments and their people. And this is, I guess, not only inadequate, it's also disempowering, it's inefficient. Um, and the reason why I say that is because the, the risks and the potential impacts of these events are often really well understood and sometimes forecasted. Like we know these events are going to happen. We know what the impacts are going to be. We know how much it's going to cost. So it should be possible in theory to calculate and prearrange finance for responding to these events in advance. Um, and so I think you know, not only the humanitarian system is not well set up to respond um, to these kinds of um, events at, at present um, and will also be um, challenged, I think, um, to respond better to the sort of gradual slow onset events. So quite a lot of the, the tools we have at the moment, um, disaster risk finance and um, other sort of financial instruments are work really well when you have a rapid onset event. So you've got, you know, you can understand quite quickly what the impacts are and um, provide some redress, some support um, to um, replace assets or um, support individuals who've been affected by them. That's a lot harder when you've got um, sort of gradual er erosion of livelihoods um, associated with sea level rise, desertification, um, coral bleaching, and all these other kind of processes that are much more insidious and much sort of harder to, to pin down to a, a, a start and, a, and an end. So I think we do need to think very seriously about what kinds of resources and what sort of financing instrument is going to work better for those kinds of impacts that are felt over a longer period of time. Absolutely. And I think that this uh, 
impacts, you know, the impact of this devastation is under the eyes of everyone, um, as the minister was uh, um, telling us. Uh, minister Kaltonga, can you tell us more about what else is happening outside of these negotiations? And in particular, what is Vanuatu hoping to achieve by seeking an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice? What might happen next? Well, now is the uh, litany of uh, uh, litany of uncertainty and false uh, promises. So uh, we on in in June now, Parliament uh, passed a, a resolution that uh, declared uh, climate uh, emergency in Vanuatu, and uh, that resolution was passed uh, bipartisan. Uh, and it was decided that uh, we'd pursue uh, uh, an option by uh, taking uh, the matter to the International Court of Justice, which is uh, the only other body. It's the highest court of the land and the only other body in the UN uh, uh, that <clears throat> people had ever discussed uh, uh, climate change uh, crises and, and uh, the reason, the reason for this would be to seek an opinion. We are in the midst of uh, lobbying for support because it requires a United Nations uh, resolution. And we are hoping to put this in front of the United Nations by the end of this year to get a vote. The moment we have managed to obtain the support of the CARICOM community, the leaders of the Caribbean, uh, endorsed our uh, initiative. The, the uh, leaders of the Pacific Island Forum have also endorsed our initiative and the Council of Ministers of the ACPEU. So we believe we mustered enough support to get the majority vote. So uh, we, we hopefully we can get it passed and, and, and seek an opinion in the International Court of Justice, which which whilst it's an opinion, but it has great legal morality on the interpretation of the current arrangement of things. And perhaps it will also lead to uh, uh, improving the level of ambition that uh, countries uh, uh, need to lift. Uh, it also uh, help us understand quite a number of countries. And this came out in the meeting in the, the African Caribbean Pacific meeting that Perhaps we need to enact environmental laws and climate change laws. So it provides a common ground for us to agree on certain things in order to mitigate climate change, uh, to, 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 to establish uh, legal obligations. And therefore, uh, perhaps has a transformative approach, uh, identify funding as such on, a, on, on an easier scale for uh, to address the very uh, <clears throat> areas of funding that were endorsed by the, the COP21 in Paris. And, and that's including capacity building, that's including adaptation, uh, technology transfer, and, and also taking stock of, of what is what is uh, <laughs> currently uh, globally where, where we are. So this is what Vanuatu is looking at at the present time, and uh, we're in the process of doing. That's 
Very interesting to hear what Vanuatu is saying. But Barbados is also being very active outside of the UNFCCC. Avinash, can you tell us uh, a bit in detail uh, what Barbados is leading on? Well, I think the locus of decision making for the main things that have to happen are not in UNFCC. Uh, they're actually at the shareholders' meetings of the multilateral development banks and the international financial institutions. We are pushing for a global climate mitigation trust seeded with SDRs and donor guarantees. That's really going to be decided at the boards of the IMF. And we, are, we are talking and arguing for a $1 trillion increase in the multilateral development bank lending, uh, partly for the pursuit of the, um, uh, of the sustainable development goals, uh, but also for climate resilience, $1 trillion, which can be had uh, by the MDBs um, uh, increasing their risk appetite by counting um, donor guarantees as part of their risk framework and being allowed to hold special drawing rights from the IMF to expand their lending. Uh, and so those are two critical areas. And we're getting movement on the idea of expanding the multilateral development bank lending and using SDRs uh, and even on the Climate Mitigation Trust. Um, well, thank you very much, Mr. Kaltonga, Avinash, Emily, Cherlin, for helping our listeners understand in more depth the details of you know, these current critical discussions on loss and damage. Negotiations are ongoing in Sharma Sheikh right now, and you're all fully involved in them. Um, so thanks for joining us at a very busy time for all of you. We hope we can see progress in Sharm towards an agreement that can help vulnerable countries like Vanuatu, like other seeds, have access to the financial support that they need to address and mitigate the catastrophic effects of the climate emergency. Um, thank you to our listeners for joining today's episode. As always, the research and other resources we have referred to in this episode will be made available in the show notes. Um, next time, we'll be concluding this three-part series on the climate negotiations with a look ahead to COP28. We'll be asking how adaptation can be prioritized in finance against the geopolitical context that is rapidly shifting and what might happen over the year ahead. We hope you will join us again then. And if you enjoy the show, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening.